Book One, Chapter Three, Sections One to Four of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Third The Entertainment of Mr. Durick Reaches a Climax. One. Breakfast was in the open air, and a sunny, easy-going feast. Then the small boys laid hands on Mr. Durick, and showed him the pond and the boats, while Mr. Britling strolled about the lawn with Hugh, talking rather intently. And when Mr. Durick returned from the boats in a state of greatly enhanced popularity, he found Mr. Britling conversing over his garden railings, to what was altogether a new type of Britisher in Mr. Durick's experience. It was a tall, lean, sun-bitten youngish man, of forty perhaps, in brown tweeds, looking more like the Englishman of the American illustrations than anything Mr. Durick had met hitherto. Indeed, he came very near to a complete realization of that ideal, except that there was a sort of intensity about him, and that his clipped moustache had the restrained stiffness of a wiry-haired terrier. This gentleman, Mr. Durick learnt, was Colonel Rendezvous. He spoke in clear, short sentences. They had an effect of being punched out, and he was refusing to come into the garden and talk. "'Have to do my fourteen miles before lunch,' he said. "'You haven't seen Manning about, have you?' "'He isn't here,' said Mr. Britling, and it seemed to Mr. Durick that there was the faintest ambiguity in his reply. "'Have to go alone, then,' said Colonel Rendezvous. They told me that he had started to come here. "'I shall motor over to Bramley High Oak for your Boy Scout Festival,' said Mr. Britling. "'Going to have three thousand of them,' said the Colonel. "'Good show.' His steely eye seemed to search the cover of Mr. Britling's garden for the missing Manning, and then he decided to give him up. "'I must be going,' he said. "'So long. Come up.' A well-disciplined dog came to heel, and the lean figure had given Mr. Durick a semi-military salutation, and gone upon its way. It marched with a long, elastic stride. It never looked back. "'Manning,' said Mr. Britling, "'is probably hiding up in my rose-garden.' "'Curiously enough, I guessed from your manner that that might be the case,' said Mr. Durick. Yes, Manning is a London journalist. He has a little cottage about a mile over there. Mr. Britling pointed vaguely. And he comes down for the weekends. And Rendezvous has found out he isn't fit. And everybody ought to be fit. That is the beginning and end of life for Rendezvous. Fitness. An almost mineral quality. An insatiable activity of body. Great mental simplicity. So he takes possession of poor old Manning, and trots him for that fourteen miles, at four miles an hour. Manning goes through all the agonies of death and damnation. He half dissolves, he pants and drags for the first eight or ten miles, and then I must admit he rather justifies Rendezvous's theory. He is to be found in the afternoon in a hammock, suffering from blistered feet, but otherwise unusually well. But if he can escape it, he does. He hides. But if he doesn't want to go with Rendezvous, why does he? said Mr. Durick. Well, 
rendezvous is accustomed to the command of men, and Manning's only way of refusing things is on printed forms, which he doesn't bring down to Matching's easy. Ah, behold! Far away across the lawn, between two blue cedars, there appeared a leisurely form in grey flannels and a loose tie, advancing with manifest circumspection. "'He's gone!' cried Britling. The leisurely form, obviously amiable, obviously a little out of condition, became more confident, drew nearer. "'I'm sorry to have missed him,' he said cheerfully. "'I thought he might come this way. It's going to be a very warm day indeed. Let us sit about somewhere and talk.' "'Of course,' he said, turning to Durek. "'Rendezvous is the life and soul of the country.' They strolled towards a place of seats and hammocks between the big trees into the rose garden, and the talk turned for a time upon rendezvous. "'They have the tidiest garden in Essex,' said Manning. "'It's not Mrs. Rendezvous's fault that it is so. Mrs. Rendezvous, as a matter of fact, has a taste for the picturesque. She just puts the things about in groups in the beds. She wants them, she says, to grow anyhow. She desires a romantic disorder.' but she never gets it. When he walks down the path, all the plants dress instinctively. And there's a tree near their gate. It used to be a willow. You can ask any old man in the village. But ever since Rendezvous took the place, it's been trying to present arms, with the most extraordinary results. I was passing the other day with old Windershin. You see that there old poplar, he said. It's a willow, said I. No, he said, it did used to be a willow before Colonel Rendezvous he came, but now it's a poplar. And by Jove, it is a poplar. The conversation thus opened by Manning centered for a time upon Colonel Rendezvous. He was presented as a monster of energy and self-discipline, as the determined foe of every form of looseness, slackness, and easy-goingness. He's done wonderful work for the local Boy Scout movement, said Manning. It's Kitchenerism, said Britling. It's the army side of the efficiency stunt, said Manning. There followed a digression upon the Boy Scout movement, and Mr. Durek made comparisons with the propaganda of Seton Thompson in America. Colonel Teddyism, said Manning, it's a sort of reaction against everything being too easy and too safe. It's got its anti-decadent side, said Mr. Durek. If there is such a thing as decadence, said Mr. Britling. If there wasn't such a thing as decadence, said Manning, we journalists would have had to invent it. There is something tragical in all this, what shall I call it, Kitchenerism, Mr. Britling reflected, here you have it rushing about and keeping itself screwed up, and trying desperately to keep the country screwed up, and all because there may be a war some day, somehow, with Germany, provided Germany is insane. It's that war, like some sort of bee in rendezvous brains, that is driving him along the road now to Market Saffron. He always keeps to the roads, because they are severer, through all the dust and sunshine when he might be here gossiping. "'And you know, I don't see that war coming,' said Mr. Britling. "'I believe rendezvous sweats in vain. I can't believe in that war. 
It has held off for forty years. It may hold off forever. He nodded his head towards the German tutor, who had come into view across the lawn, talking profoundly with Mr. Britling's eldest son. Look at that pleasant person. There he is, echt Deutsch, if anything ever was. Look at my son there. Do you see the two of them engaged in mortal combat? The thing's too ridiculous. The world grows sane. They may fight in the Balkans still. In many ways the Balkan states are in the very rear of civilization. But to imagine decent countries like this or Germany going back to bloodshed. No, when I see rendezvous keeping it up and keeping it up, I begin to see just how poor Germany must be keeping it up. I begin to realize how sick Germany must be getting of the high road and the dust and heat and the everlasting drill and restraint. My heart goes out to the South Germans. Old Manning here always reminds me of Austria. Think of Germany coming like rendezvous on a Sunday morning and looking stiffly over Austria's fence. Come for a good walk, man. Keep fit. But suppose this Balkan trouble becomes acute, said Manning. It hasn't. It won't. Even if it did, we should keep out of it. But suppose Russia grappled Austria, and Germany flung herself suddenly upon France, perhaps taking Belgium on the way. Oh, we should fight. Of course we should fight. Could anyone but a congenital idiot suppose we shouldn't fight? They know we should fight. They aren't altogether idiots in Germany. But the thing's absurd. Why should Germany attack France? It's as if Manning here took a hatchet suddenly and assailed Edith. It's just the dream of their military journalists. It's such schoolboy nonsense. Isn't that a beautiful pillar, Rose? Edith only put it in last year. I hate all this talk of wars and rumors of wars. It's worried all my life. And it gets worse and it gets emptier every year. 2. Now just at that moment there was a loud report. But neither Mr. Britling, nor Mr. Manning, nor Mr. Durick was interrupted or incommoded in the slightest degree by that report, because it was too far off over the curve of this round world to be either heard or seen at Matching's Easy. Nevertheless it was a very loud report. It occurred at an open space, by a river, that ran through a cramped oriental city, a city spiked with white minarets and girt about by bare hills under a blazing afternoon sky. It came from a black parcel that the Archduke Francis Ferdinand of Austria, with great presence of mind, had just flung out from the open hood of his automobile, where, tossed from the side of the quay, it had descended a few seconds before. It exploded as it touched the cobbled road just under the front of the second vehicle in the procession, and it blew to pieces the front of the automobile, and injured the aide-de-camp who was in it and several of the spectators. Its thrower was immediately gripped by the bystanders. The procession stopped. There was a tremendous commotion amongst that brightly costumed crowd, a hot excitement in vivid contrast to the Sabbath calm of matching Zizi. Mr. Britling, to whom the explosion was altogether inaudible, continued his dissertation upon the common sense of the world and the practical security 
of our Western peace. 3. Lunch was an open-air feast again. Three visitors had dropped in. They had motored down from London, piled up on a motorcycle and a sidecar. A brother and two sisters they seemed to be, and they had apparently reduced hilariousness to a principle. The rumors of coming hockey that had been floating on the outskirts of Mr. Durick's consciousness ever since his arrival thickened and multiplied. It crept into his mind that he was expected to play. He decided he would not play. He took various people into his confidence. He told Mr. Britling, and Mr. Britling said, We'll make you fullback, where you'll get a hit now and then, and not have very much to do. All you have to remember is to hit with the flat side of your stick, and not raise it above your shoulders. He told Teddy, and Teddy said, I strongly advise you to dress as thinly as you can, consistent with decency, and put your collar and tie in your pocket before the game begins. Hockey is properly a winter game. He told the maiden aunt-like lady with the prominent nose, and she said, almost enviously, Everyone here is asked to play except me. I assuage the perambulator. I suppose one mustn't be envious. I don't see why I shouldn't play. I'm not so old as all that. He told Hugh, and Hugh warned him to be careful not to get hold of one of the sprung sticks. He considered whether it wouldn't be wiser to go to his own room and lock himself in, or stroll off for a walk through Clavering's Park. But then he would miss Miss Corner, who was certain, it seemed, to come up for hockey. On the other hand, if he did not miss her, he might make himself ridiculous in her eyes, and efface the effect of the green silk stuff with the golden pheasants. He determined to stay behind until she arrived, and explain to her that he was not going to play. He didn't somehow want her to think he wasn't perfectly fit to play. Mr. Carmine arrived in an automobile with two Indians and a gentleman who had been a prospector in Alaska. The family who had danced overnight at the Dower House reappeared, and then Mrs. Teddy, very detached with a special hockey stick, and Miss Corner wheeling the perambulator. Then came further arrivals. At the earliest opportunity, Mr. Durick secured the attention of Miss Corner, and lost his interest in anyone else. "'I can't play this hockey,' said Mr. Durick. "'I feel strange about it. It isn't an American game. Now, if it were baseball—' He left her to suppose him uncommonly hot stuff at baseball. "'If you're on my side,' said Cecily, "'mind you pass to me.' It became evident to Mr. Durick that he was going to play this hockey after all. Well, he said, if I've got to play hockey, I guess I've got to play hockey. But can I just get a bit of practice somewhere before the game begins? So Miss Corner went off to get two sticks and a ball, and came back to instruct Mr. Durick. She said he had a good eye. The two small boys, sending play in the air, got sticks and joined them. The overnight visitor's wife appeared from the house in abbreviated skirts, and wearing formidable shin-guards. With her abundant fair hair, which was already breaking loose, so to speak, to join the fray, she looked like a short, stout, dismounted valkyr. 
her gaze was clear and firm. 4. Hockey, as it was played at the Dower House at Matching's Easy before the war, was a game combining danger, physical exercise, and kindliness in a very high degree. Except for the infant in the perambulator, and the outwardly calm but inwardly resentful aunt, who wheeled the child up and down in a position of maximum danger just behind the unnetted goal, everyone was involved. Quite able-bodied people acquainted with the game played forward. The less well-informed played a defensive game behind the forward line. Elderly, infirm, and bulky persons were used chiefly as obstacles in goal. Several players wore padded leg guards, and all players were assumed to have them and expected to behave accordingly. Proceedings began with an invidious ceremony called picking up. This was heralded by Mr. Britling, clad in the diaphanous flannels and bearing a hockey stick, advancing with loud shouts to the centre of the hockey field. "'Pick up! Pick up!' echoed the young Britlings. Mr. Durrock became aware of a tall, drooping man with long hair and long, digressive legs in still longer white flannel trousers, and a face that was somehow familiar. He was talking with affectionate intimacy to Manning, and suddenly Mr. Durrock remembered that it was in Manning's weekly paper, The Sectarian, in which a bitter caricaturist enlivened a biting text that he had become familiar with the features of Manning's companion. It was Rayburn, Rayburn the insidious, Rayburn the completest product of the party system. Well, that was the English way. "'Come for the pickup!' cried the youngest Britling, seizing upon Mr. Durrick's elbow. It appeared that Mr. Britling and the overnight dinner guest, Mr. Durrick never learned his name, were picking up. Names were shouted. "'I'll take Cecily!' Mr. Durrock heard Mr. Britling say quite early. The opposing sides, as they were picked, fell into two groups. There seemed to be difficulties about some of the names. Mr. Britling, pointing to the more powerful-looking of the Indian gentlemen, said, "'You, sir!' "'I'm going to speculate on Mr. Dinks,' said Mr. Britling's opponent. Mr. Durrock gathered that Mr. Dinks was to be his hockey name." "'You're on our side,' said Mrs. Teddy. "'I think you'll have to play forward, out or right, and keep a sharp eye on Sissy.' "'I'll do what I can,' said Mr. Durrock. His captain presently confirmed this appointment. His stick was really a sort of club, and the ball was a firm, hard cricket ball. He resolved to be very gentle with Cecily, and see that she didn't get hurt. The sides took their places for the game, and a kind of order became apparent to Mr. Durrock. In the centre stood Mr. Britling and the opposing captain, and the ball lay between them. They were preparing to bully off and start the game. In a line with each of them were four other forwards. They all looked spirited and intent young people, and Mr. Durrock wished he had had more exercise to justify his own alert appearance. Behind each centre forward hovered one of the Britling boys. Then on each side came a vaguer row of three backs, persons of gentler disposition or maturer years. 
They included Mr. Rayburn, who was considered to have great natural abilities for hockey, but little experience. Mr. Rayburn was behind Mr. Durick. Mrs. Britling was the centre-back. Then in a corner of Mr. Durick's side was a small girl of six or seven, and in the half-circle about the goal a lady in a motoring dust-coat, and a very short little man, who Mr. Durick had not previously remarked. Mr. Lawrence Carmine, stripped to the braces, which were richly ornamented with oriental embroidery, kept goal for our team. The centre-forwards went through a rapid little ceremony. They smote their sticks on the ground, and then hit the sticks together. One, said Mr. Britling. The operation was repeated. Two, three, smack! Mr. Britling had got it, and the ball had gone to the shorter and sturdier of the younger Britlings, who had been standing behind Mr. Durick's captain. Crack! And it was away to Teddy. Smack! And it was coming right at Durick. Lordy, he said, and prepared to smite it. Then something swift and blue had flashed before him, intercepted the ball, and shot it past him. This was Cecily Corner, and she and Teddy were running abreast like the wind towards Mr. Rayburn. Hey! cried Mr. Rayburn. Stop! and advanced, as it seemed to Mr. Durick, with unseemly and threatening gestures towards Sissy. But before Mr. Durick could adjust his mind to this new phase of affairs, Cecily had passed the right honourable gentleman with the same mysterious ease with which she had flashed by Mr. Durick, and was bearing down upon the miscellaneous lanver which formed the backs of Mr. Durick's side. "'You rabbit!' cried Mr. Rayburn, and became extraordinarily active in pursuit, administering great lengths of arm and leg, with a centralized efficiency he had not hitherto displayed. Running hard to the help of Mr. Rayburn was the youngest Britling boy, a beautiful contrast. It was like a puffball, supporting and assisting a conger eel. In front of Mr. Durick, the little stout man was being alert. Teddy was supporting the attack near the middle of the field, crying, Center! while Mr. Britling, very round and resolute, was bouncing straight towards the threatened goal. But Mrs. Teddy, running as swiftly as her sister, was between Teddy and the ball. Whack! The little short man's stick had clashed with Cecily's. Confused things happened with sticks and feet, and the little short man appeared to be trying to cut down Cecily as one cuts down a tree. She tried to pass the ball to her center forward. Too late, and then Mrs. Teddy had intercepted it, and was flickering back towards Mr. Britling's goal in a rush, in which Mr. Durick perceived it was his duty to join. Yes, he had to follow up Mrs. Teddy, and pick up the ball if he had a chance, and send it in to her, or the captain, or across to the left forwards, as circumstances might decide. It was perfectly clear. Then came his moment, the little formidably padded lady, who had dined at the dower house overnight, made a gallant attack upon Mrs. Teddy. Out of the confusion of this clash, the ball spun into Mr. Durick's radius. Where should he smite, and how? A moment of reflection was natural. 
but now the easy-fitting discipline of the dower-house style of hockey became apparent. Mr. Durrock had last observed the tall young Indian gentleman, full of vitality and anxious for destruction, far away in the distance on the opposing right wing. But now, regardless of the more formal methods of the game, this young man had resolved, without further delay and at any cost, to hit the ball hard, and he was travelling like some Asiatic typhoon with an extreme velocity, across the remonstrances of Mr. Britling and the general order of his side. Mr. Durrock became aware of him just before his impact. There was a sort of collision from which Mr. Durrock emerged with a feeling that one side of his face was permanently flattened, but still gallantly resolved to hit the comparatively lethargic ball. He and the staggered but resolute Indian clashed sticks again. And Mr. Durrock had the best of it. Years of experience couldn't have produced a better pass to the captain. Good pass! Apparently from one of the London visitors. But this was some game! The ball executed some rapid movements to and fro across the field. Our side was pressing hard. There was a violent convergence of miscellaneous backs and such-like irregulars upon the threatened goal. Mr. Britling's dozen was rapidly losing its disciplined order. One of the sidecar ladies and the gallant Indian had shifted their activities to the defensive back, and with them was a spectacled gentleman waving his stick high above all recognized rules. Mr. Durrick's captain and both Britling boys hurried to join the fray. Mr. Britling, who seemed to Mr. Durrick to be for a captain rather too demagogic, also ran back to rally his forces by loud cries. "'Pass outwardly!' was the burthen of his contribution. The struggle about the Britling goal ceased to be a game, and became something between a fight and a social gathering. Mr. Britling's goalkeeper could be heard shouting, "'I can't see the ball! Lift your feet!' The crowded conflict lurched towards the goalposts. "'My shin!' cried Mr. Manning. No, you don't. Whack! But again, whack! Whack! Ah, would you? Whack! Goal! cried the sidecar gentleman. Goal! cried the Britling boys. Mr. Manning, as goalkeeper, went to recover the ball, but one of the Britling boys politely anticipated him. The crowd became inactive, and then began to drift back to loosely conceived positions. It's no good swarming into goal like that, Mr. Britling, with a faint asperity in his voice, explained to his followers. We've got to keep open and not crowd each other. Then he went confidentially to the energetic young Indian to make some restrictive explanation of his activities. Mr. Durrick strolled back toward Cecily. He was very warm and a little blown, but not, he felt, disgraced. He was winning. "'You'll have to take your coat off,' she said. It was a good idea. It had occurred to several people, and the boundary line was already dotted with hastily discarded jackets and wraps and so forth. But the lady in the motoring dust-coat was buttoning it to the chin. "'One goal love,' said the minor Britling boy. "'We haven't begun yet, Sonny,' said Cecily. 
Sonny, that's American, said Mr. Durick. No, we call him Sonny Jim, said Cecily. They're bullying off again. Sonny Jim's American, too, said Mr. Durick, returning to his place. The struggle was resumed, and soon it became clear that the first goal was no earnest of the quality of the struggle. Teddy and Cecily formed a terribly efficient combination. Against their brilliant rushes, supported in a vehement but effective manner by the Indian to their right, and guided by loud shoutings from Mr. Britling, center, Mr. Durick and the sidecar lady and Mr. Rayburn struggled in vain. One swift advance was only checked by the dust-cloak, its folds held the ball until help arrived. Another was countered by a tremendous swipe of Mr. Rayburn's that sent the ball within an inch of the youngest Britling's head and right across the field. The third resulted in a swift pass from Cecily to the elder Britling son away on her right, and he shot the goal neatly and swiftly through the lattice of Mr. Lawrence Carmine's defensive movements. And after that, very rapidly came another goal for Mr. Britling's side, and then another. Then Mr. Britling cried out that it was half-time, and explained to Mr. Durick that whenever one side got to three goals, they considered it was half-time, and had five minutes' rest and changed sides. Everybody was very hot and happy, except the lady in the dust-cloak, who was perfectly cool. In everybody's eyes shone the light of battle, and not a shadow disturbed the brightness of the afternoon for Mr. Durick, except a certain unspoken anxiety about Mr. Rayburn's trousers. You see, Mr. Durick had never seen Mr. Rayburn before, and knew nothing about his trousers. They appeared to be coming down. To begin with, they had been rather loose over the feet and turned up, and as the game progressed, fold after fold of concertinaed flannel gathered about his ankles. Every now and then, Mr. Rayburn would seize the opportunity of some respite from the game, to turn up a fresh six inches or so of this accumulation. Naturally, Mr. Durick expected this policy to end unhappily. He did not know that the flannel trousers of Mr. Rayburn were like a river, that they could come down forever and still remain inexhaustible. He had visions of this scene of happy innocence being suddenly blasted by a monstrous disaster. Apart from this worry, Mr. Durick was as happy as any one there. Perhaps these apprehensions affected his game. At any rate, he did nothing that pleased him in the second half. Cecily danced all over him and round and about him, and in the course of ten minutes her side had won the two remaining goals with a score of 5-1, and five goals is game by the standards of matching Zizi. And then, with the very slightest of delays, these insatiable people picked up again. Mr. Durick slipped away, and returned in a white silk shirt, tennis trousers, and a belt. This time he and Cecily were on the same side. The Cecily-Teddy combination was broken, and he, it seemed, was to take the place of the redoubtable Teddy on the left wing with her. This time the sides were better chosen, and played a long, obstinate, even game. One-one, one-two, one-three, 
half-time. Two-three. Three-all. Four-three. Four-all. By this time Mr. Durick was beginning to master the simple strategy of the sport. He was also beginning to master the fact that Cecily was the quickest, nimblest, most indefatigable player on the field. He scouted for her and passed to her. He developed tacit understandings with her. Ideas of protecting her had gone to the four winds of heaven. Against them, Teddy and a sidecar girl with Rayburn in support made a memorable struggle. Teddy was as quick as a cat. Four-three looked like winning, but then Teddy and the tall Indian and Mrs. Teddy pulled square. They almost repeated this feat and won, but Mr. Manning saved the situation with an immense oblique hit that sent the ball to Mr. Durick. He ran with the ball up to Rayburn, and then dodged and passed to Cecily. There was a lively struggle to the left. The ball was hit up by Mr. Rayburn and thrown in by a young Britling, lost by the forwards and rescued by the padded lady. Forward again! This time we'll do it! Cecily, away to the left, had worked round Mr. Rayburn once more. Teddy, realizing that things were serious, was tearing back to attack her. Mr. Durick supported with silent intentness. Send her! cried Mr. Britling. Send her! Mr. Durick! came her voice, full of confidence. Of such moments is the heroic life. The ball shot behind the hurtling Teddy. Mr. Durick stopped it with his foot, a trick he had just learnt from the eldest Britling son. He was neither slow nor hasty. He was in the half-circle, and the way to the goal was barred only by the dust-cloak lady and Mr. Lawrence Carmine. He made as if to shoot to Mr. Carmine's left, and then smacked the ball, with the swiftness of a serpent's stroke, to his right. He'd done it! Mr. Carmine's stick and feet were a yard away. Then, hard on his wild triumph, came a flash of horror. One can't see everything. His eye followed the ball's trajectory. Directly in its line of flight was the perambulator. The ball missed the legs of the lady with the noble nose by a kind of miracle, hit and glanced off the wheel of the perambulator, and went spinning into a border of anti-rhinums. "'Good!' cried Cecily. "'Splendid shot!' He'd shot a goal. He'd done it well. The perambulator, it seemed, didn't matter. Though apparently the impact had awakened the baby. In the margin of his consciousness was the figure of Mr. Britling remarking, "'Auntie, you really mustn't wheel the perambulator just there.' I thought, said the aunt, indicating the goalposts by a facial movement, that those two sticks would be a sort of protection. Ah, did they then? Never mind that. That's game, said one of the junior Britlings to Mr. Durick, with a note of high appreciation, and the whole party, relaxing and crumpling like a lowered flag, moved towards the house and tea. End of Book 1, Chapter 3, Sections 1 to 4.